0: Morning, congregation. Morning. Today's scripture reading uh, can be found in uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 11. The Lord is honored. We stand for the reading of his word. The word reads, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but are in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your precious word. Uh, It is for that reason, because of your word, we are here today. Uh, Having received your gospel, uh, your revelation, we are uh, uh, so amazed and so uh, wonderfully grateful, Lord, at the beauty of who you are uh, and the realization of how wretched and and sinful we are, O God. So thankful that you have redeemed us in spite of ourselves, Lord. That you recognize, Lord, in putting in your spirit in us that we could reflect true beauty, Lord. That true beauty that uh, comes from you, Lord. That we could uh, be partakers in that is truly a high and remarkable calling. And we are so privileged and thank you so much for that, oh God. Lord, as we attend to your word this afternoon, this morning, uh, we pray that with hearts that are uh, desiring to be filled, that we may be attentive to the message today, Lord. May we, Lord, just endeavor and desire all the more to be filled more and more with your presence, Lord, as we uh, hear of your word and are uh, just blessed by it. We thank you, O God, for the message today. We pray. Lord, that as Nick prepares to come up, Lord, that you will speak through him, Lord, that your words, Lord, will be his words, Father, and that hearts will be touched and lives will be changed, Lord, and that we might continue to walk and march towards, Lord, your glory, Lord, as we behold you through the hearing of the word preached. We thank you, O heavenly God, for this high calling and privilege. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: morning. Can everybody hear me? Wow. I'm excited. You guys excited? This is awesome. Well, uh, as always, thank you for giving me this opportunity to share God's word with you. It is completely an honor. And I I, I know I always say that, but it is. This is a big deal. This expositing God's Word, reading the Word, it's a huge deal. So thank you. Thank you, church, for embracing me on this journey towards ordination. While God does whatever He wishes to do during this time, I just want to say thank you. But before, before we dive into this amazing scripture that we just read, let's confront our God and let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, as I continue to repeat, this is all about You. As we learn what Romans 8, 6-11 means, I pray that it changes our hearts and it renews our mind to Your beautiful reality what it means to be in the Spirit, what it means to be in the flesh. Father, bring that to us as a reality and for those that do not Know what this whole thing's about. I pray that their lives, their hearts, and their realities are transformed by the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love you, God. We thank you for this amazing opportunity. In Jesus' precious name, all God's people say, Amen. Amen. So, recently I've been watching sermon after sermon after sermon, and attempt to really try to understand this passage, Romans 8, 6 through 11, well. And I watch all of my favorites, and I even watch some new people, right? Just to try to get a general sense, a general idea. And what I notice is that the first point of most of the sermons that I've interacted with on Romans 8, 6 through 11 focuses on the mind and our thinking. And what it's doing is it's, it's, it's attempting to stay true to the way our translation translates this particular text. In other words, they often limit the reading of what Paul says here, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. They often limit the reading to it as talking about the way we think. While this opening section does, in a sense, talk about our thinking and our minds, the primary focus is on something really much, much deeper. Its primary focus is actually better communicated in the NET Bible. Now, I'm not saying I don't like the ESV, I love it. It's my primary go-to, I read from it. But this particular text, I believe, is better interpreted this way. It says, for the outlook of the flesh is death, but the outlook of the spirit is life and peace. What's an outlook, right? An outlook is a person's point of view or perspective of life. And this is what I believe Paul is getting at in the opening sections of our text in Romans 6 and 7, as soon as we get into this passage, this is what he's saying. And it leads us to the first point of our sermon, and that is that life in Christ determines our worldview. When the ESV and many other translations talk about the mind, it is not just talking merely about our thoughts. It is talking about the worldview that we hold as Christians. Now, we will get into what a biblical Christian worldview is in a moment. But as the basic word suggests, a worldview is a person's, how did the NET Bible translate it? Outlook or perspective of life. Their view of the world. What I'm not saying is that it is a physical view of the world. Instead, this particular text is talking about a philosophical view of the world. Okay, so, depending on your worldview, depending on what worldview you hold to, there are very important questions that are answered, such as, why are we all here? What is the afterlife? What is good and bad?" All of these things are answered. Are they answered correctly or incorrectly? It all bases it all depends on our r- worldview. Now I remember a time where my dad had my wife and I on a journey. We were, he saw these HD glasses on TV. And he was, he was so excited to get them. We went store to store. We couldn't find them. Finally, we found them at Walmart. And on the box, you should have saw how they sold them. I think they sold them pretty well. In fact, I have them right here. Now, on this box, it says light filtering technology. It blocks bright light and glare so you see clearly, right? you got to see this. It gives you a before and after. I think they sold them really well. In fact, my dad even says, when he first got them, at least he probably changed his mind by now, um, that they work really well. And if you're listening, uh, Battle Vision, I am a seminary student. And if you want to pay me for this advertisement, I'm right here. Um, but let's check them out. Don't judge me, all right? How do I look? How do I look? Come on, guys. You could give the God glory some other time. Tell me how I look. Oh, man. Let me tell you something. I thought, I thought my wife looked good before. (laughs) These things, man, they are incredible, but I don't know if they're really incredible, but it, it fits the analogy here. Anyway, um, a worldview is similar to these high definition, so to speak, glasses. These glasses affect what we see in the world, and they affect how we see it and how we describe the world around us, but what if these glasses promised a black and white world? Can you imagine them being high definition? No, right? So if my dad would have put these on and they promised a black and white world, his vision would have been distorted and his worldview may have not seen certain things at all. So similarly, let's put these here, people with non-Christian worldviews have an entirely different perspective on topics like sex, abortion, same-sex marriage, and this society's personal favorite, racial injustice. It doesn't take long in your social media feeds or on your news channels to come across these topics. But in order to understand what a biblical Christian worldview is, and I want to be clear here, I'm saying biblical Christian worldview because there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians. Hitler is one of the most famous that identified with Christianity. Our society calls itself a Christian nation. We know those things are not true. So we base our opinion on what is Christian and what is not based on the Bible. So we're saying biblical Christian worldview. But in order to understand what something is, you have to understand what it's not. So, on the screen are some examples of non-Christian worldviews. Again, the purpose of this is for comparing and contrasting what a Christian worldview is, a biblical one, compared to a non-Christian worldview. And it's to show a major comparison, a major contrast to what we know a Christian biblical worldview is. First, we have naturalism. That means God doesn't exist. Those who hold to it believe that God doesn't exist. And humans are just highly evolved animals. Then we have postmodernism. Reality is a social construct. There are no objective truths or moral standards. So basically, you kind of just... Kind of learn as you go, whatever you feel, I feel, and we make that the reality. We make that our moral standard. Then we have pantheism, the idea that God is not a personalized individual, someone that we know he is, right? But that all forces of the universe are God. So, in a way, all of the different gods of all the different religions are, in a sense, true in a sense that they represent God in a way, and they're all kind of true. Then we have my personal favorite moralistic, therapeutic deism. You want to say that five times with me? And that is, God wants us to be happy, and God wants us to be kind, and this is great, right? So far, so good. Except, you are in control of everything, and he'll only intervene when you ask. That pretty much sums it up. It's pretty cool, but it's not true. You see, These worldviews are entirely different than the one Paul gives us in the opening of our verses. That's verses 6 and 7. Again, chapter 8 of Romans, 6 through 11, we are just in the beginning, 6 and 7. But keep in mind, there are many other worldviews that are different than this one. If you are interested, you can Google this stuff. Look it up online. But for time's sake, I just wanted to give you a major contrast, a major comparison to what a biblical Christian worldview is. In the opening of our text, different from the worldviews that we see on the screen, Paul sets a framework for a biblical Christian worldview which directly opposes the ones that I gave you. What does the text say? Let's pull it up here. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life. And peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. If you haven't noticed, I was reading this text partially without looking because I hope all of you have memorized this one at this point. So, uh, I mean, I can't tell you I have the full chapter memorized, but up to this far, I I got it pretty down. Um, But you see, to set our outlook... Or our perspectives, or our worldview on the Spirit. What does the text say? Is life and peace. Our biblical, Christian, high definition glasses that God has given us. How? Through the indwelling of His Spirit and through faith in Christ should give us a lens of a biblical, Christian worldview that looks Like this, we are God's creation designed to be on mission for the gospel of Jesus Christ and to fellowship with Him. So what we're doing here is fellowshipping with each other and God. But for those who are watching that may not know what it means to be on mission for Jesus Christ, you see in His Word we are called to be image bearers of Jesus Christ. So that means what we put on and what we put out should be filled With Jesus. And He is supposed to be personally um, motivating our ways and, and inspiring us to be more and more like Him. Another part of being on mission for Jesus Christ is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the Bible tells us to be fishers of men. We want to go out and preach the good news to all nations. To the people who desperately need this good news. So this is the first part. Second, we sin against God, are in desperate need for a Savior. We see from the beginning in Genesis, we learn that sin has affected us all. And can anyone tell me that they're not guilty of sinning in this room? Oh, you're not? That's great. Jesus, please step up here. No, no. If you can honestly say that you have not chose to sin, then I know we're all lying. Right? So we sin against God are in desperate need of a Savior. That's that's the other lens that we must put on as a biblical Christian. Here. Third. God redeemed us apart from anything we could say or do. Here, what do I have? I have church key, house key. Let's go with the church. Okay? Since it, it does represent Christ and We do God's work here. I have a key here, right? So if I told you, I want you to stand at the front door, and I have the key, and I want you to do as many good works as possible, and eventually the door will open. Does that make any sense at all? You have no key, but if you stand outside in that front door that's purely locked, if you feed the poor, If you give money to the needy, if you clean someone's car, if you stop cursing, if you eliminate sin from your life, eventually the door is going to open. Is the door going to open? I have the key. Obviously the key is the only thing that can open a door, but yet so many people believe that it's their good works that get them into heaven, but we know there is only one key. And that key... Is how God redeemed us. God redeemed us through the sacrifice of His Son, the Messiah of the world, the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Hopefully I don't forget my keys behind the pulpit. Can someone please remind me? <laughs> Lastly, it gives us a better understanding of eternity. What does this lens look like? Having an eternal worldview instead of a temporal one. As Christians, we know that the things of this world are temporary. So when we look out, when we're physically looking at the world, we know that it is a temporary home. And that our home, as Bible-believing Christians, for those who place their trust, trust and faith in Jesus Christ, our home is in the presence of God. Our lens sees the world as temporary and we are on mission because we know that it's temporary. We are on mission because we know that eternal life is what we're striving for and the glorification of God is what we're striving for and glorifying Him and Him alone is what we're striving for. So that is what the lens does. We will talk about in a moment what life and death looks like for a Christian. But the lens itself tells us that the world is temporary And that eternal life with God is permanent. Amen? Amen? The beauty of just the opening verses, we're just at six and seven, is that if we set our outlook or our worldview in union with the truths that I just mentioned, all of the Christian lens, right? What does God do? God provides true life and true peace in Him. I'm not making this up. This is what the text says. Through Him, you get true life and true peace. We, we get a physical life here on earth with purpose beyond our wildest dreams. So we get life and peace, but our purpose here, although we know the world is temporary, our purpose here is beyond our wildest dreams. Can you imagine having a job to glorify God? Can you imagine having a job to being on mission for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be used as a tool to bring good news to people who have none? Can you imagine being that messenger in a a room filled with death, bringing hope? In a room filled with evil, bringing hope. That's our job. We have purpose beyond our water stream. But the beauty just doesn't end with our purpose or with our new high-definition glasses. It would be a major... We would be major hypocrites if a life in Christ simply just gave us a new perspective so that we saw things differently. But we didn't do anything differently. Or if we were telling people about this good news and being on mission but not transformed by it. So yeah, the first point of this text is that Life in Christ determines our worldview. But the second point about text is that life in Christ determines who we are and what we do. <laughs> We're just at verses eight and nine. We got two more left. As we continue reading through this text, Paul clearly states that our transformation just doesn't stop at a changed worldview. But it literally continues so that we become and we have new identities in Christ Jesus. What does it say? You, however, are not in the flesh, but we've all sinned. You are not in the flesh when you place your your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So there's a comparison going on from the beginning of our text. And that comparison, uh, you know, introduces us to some worldviews that obviously do not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and do not have that foundation that we have as Christians. And God's truth is not motivating their lives. And as verse 7 says, they are hostile, or as a simpler way of putting it. I know that's an odd word, right? They oppose God's truths. But in verses 8 and 9, he clarifies the difference of a person who is in the flesh and a person who is in the Spirit. This compare and contrast is continuing on into verses 8 and 9. Paul says that people who live according to the flesh are people that do not have the Spirit of Christ and therefore cannot and do not belong to Him. There is a comparison here. And it continues. Those in the flesh have identities that are not in Christ. And they live in our world without Him as if all that matters are their own individual lives and the world that they're living in as if all that, that's all that matters. This is not just a heavy theological point that Paul just sticks in here without purpose. But it is a divide. It is creating a divide between those who are not and those who are in the spirit. And some of our social media feeds and news channels are clearly dividing us here as well. We see divisive arguments on topics like racial tensions and moral political agendas, lying, aborting babies and pretending like it's okay. It's not okay. God being removed from our schools and removed from our government, removed from our nation, and we dare call our nation a Christian nation. It's a continuous battle between those that stand by God and those that stand against Him. It is a battle for God's people that want things God's way against those who live for themselves and want things their way. And they interpret the events around them As if what's happening represents a God that does not exist. But we know He exists. Walking in the Spirit is true in the sense that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. We've determined that on our second point, right? Our new identities must be true. Why? Is the Holy Spirit real? Is the Holy Spirit real? Yes. Is Jesus Christ real? And the Holy Spirit really did rise him from the dead. Amen. That is historical fact. And that same Spirit that rose him from the dead is the same Spirit that causes you to be an entirely different person. If that Spirit is powerful enough to raise Christ from the dead, it's certainly powerful enough to change our worldview, and to change our identities. Amen? Amen. But I'm not being a hypocrite up here. I'm not going to say that we all don't fall short of the glory of God. We all sin. We all fall short. We all have done things that we regret. And I'm here relating to you. We all have done things that we regret. But there's a big difference. Paul's comparing and contrasting, and we are comparing and contrasting here The difference is when a person is in Christ, there are new identities are in Christ, and their sin wrecks them. When you sin against a holy God, and you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and you make a mistake and you sin against God, you are to grieve in that same spirit. We know we failed. We know we sinned against God. But it should break us. For those who are in Christ, it should break us. For Christians who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, for Christians who claim that they have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, for Christians that have the Spirit of God in them and claim that they are new identities, when you make a mistake, it should break you. As we spoke about before, a worldview defines what and who we are. You know, some of those things that we read. That's how those people, that's their perspective on life. But a biblical Christian worldview defines the what as a new creation in Christ Jesus. And the who, as people that have the indwelling of the Spirit of God and therefore their actions show it. What is 1 Corinthians 6.19 say, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. Who we are, our identities, is in Christ Jesus. What we do glorifies God in our body. What we do reflects that truth that we're claiming. No matter how many times we fail, we fall on our knees to a God who, with His Holy Spirit, can make us right before Him. Amen? So now we understand, as readers of God's Word, that we are to have, and every time you... Put on sunglasses. I know a lot of you guys drive, right, with sunglasses on. Every time you put them on, I want you to remember the lens, the biblical Christian worldview that you have and hope that your actions reflect that. But we understand through the readings of verses 8 and 9 of our text a big contrast of those who live in the Spirit and those who live according to the flesh. However, why does this all matter? Why does a worldview matter? What does our identity in Christ do for us? What does it do? The answer resides in the third and final point of our text. Again, we walk through 6 and 7. Life in Christ determines our worldview. Then we're at 8 and 9. Life in Christ determines who we are and what we do. And here we are in verses 10 and 11, closing out. Expositing this text, life in Christ determines life or death. Let's read the closing verses together. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. How incredible is it that I can read text and I go to a church, I can recite it without looking. Is that not incredible? If you don't have a church that does that, come here, you'll feel right at home. What is it saying? Those that don't have life in Christ will die. Those who do will live. What in the world is it saying? Although the body is dead, the spirit is life. What is Paul talking about here? Obviously, we're all going to die one day, right? And we all know, as we discussed before, that death is a result of sin that we're all guilty for. So we're all going to die. And Paul says it here, the body is dead. And in Hebrews 9.27, Paul also writes, And just... As it is appointed for man to die, how many times? Once. And after that comes judgment. As Christians, we all die. But through faith in Christ, and in His resurrection, we have the hope that we will be resurrected with Him. The Bible teaches... That for those who are in Christ, not only do their souls reach heaven in the presence of God, but we get glorified, resurrected bodies on a new heaven and new earth. But for those that are not in Christ. For those that have not come to know Jesus Christ. This is a topic that most preachers won't even touch with a 12-foot pole. They don't want to tell you about hell. They don't want to tell you about the bad news. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is the bad news about you and then the good news about Christ. If you're not telling us about the bad news first, you're not accurately teaching the gospel because we need to know the state that we were in before we've reached that new identity in Christ. They avoid the sin talk at all costs. That's not the gospel. We were sinners and He died for us. And we place our trust in Him and we get a resurrected life. And we get a new Christian biblical worldview. We become a new who. And what we do changes as well. And in turn we get life. But you see, Jesus died for your sin. He didn't die for his own. Did Jesus need salvation? No. Did he? No. no. Who did? Yeah. He didn't need it. You did. That is the gospel. You needed the gospel. You needed a way when there was no way. You needed a way to be in the presence of God. For people who live in Christ, their spirit is alive forever in the presence of God. If you live a life of faith in Christ Jesus, the one who died for the sins, for those who place their trust and faith in Him, the same Spirit that raised Him up from the dead will also give you life through His Spirit that dwells in you. In comparison, again, throughout this text, we see compare and contrast, compare and contrast, compare and contrast. If you live life rejecting the truths of God, denying His Word, denying the truths of the Gospel, you will not get what you've always wanted. You won't get the desirable peace, the ultimate joy, that you crave for. We all pray for that, right? We all want ultimate joy. We all want a purpose that is beyond our wildest dreams and we all want hope. But for those who don't place their trust in Him, they don't get eternal life in the presence of God at all. What they get is death and more death. What they get is no hope, no peace, no joy, With Christ, although your body may die, you get to live with Him for for eternity. So, you have a decision today. Will you live for yourself and die? Or will you live for Christ and live? Do you have the mind of the world? Or do you have the mind of Christ? Our worldview, our outlook, Our actions, our repentance even, our relationships, and our language should all reflect who we live for. It's a guarantee, however. We don't know when and we don't know how, but all of us is going to die one day. We're all going to die. In fact, the only one to ever defeat death, do you know who that was? Who was it? Who was the one that defeated death? Jesus Christ. He was the only one. But here's the beautiful reality. Do you know that it was impossible for Jesus Christ to ever be defeated by death? It was never even an option. What does the book of Acts say about that? Acts 2.24 says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Here it goes. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was not possible for your Savior, for Jesus Christ, to be ever held in death. It was not possible. But I am here to tell you that it is possible for you to be defeated by death. It may have not been possible for your Savior, but it is possible for you. You are not the God, man. You are not Jesus Christ. In fact, you need Christ. Amen? You need Christ. Jesus Christ is a Savior that could never be defeated by death, no matter what. Death never had victory over Him. But it can have victory over you. Who do you have your faith in today? Death never, ever had victory. And it never will over Christ. You are in desperate need of Him. With Christ in your life, you get all the things that we spoke about. He also gives you joy in times of despair. He brings you peace in times of trouble. And through him, you have a hope in the future eternal glory that awaits us who puts their faith in him in a world that really has no ultimate hope. There is no hope here apart from God. There's temporary hope. There's temporary peace but the ultimate joy, the ultimate peace, you know, it's in Christ. There's only one to ever defeat death. And that is who you should place your trust in today if you're watching or if you're here and you don't know Jesus. That is who you should place your trust in today. In conclusion, if your worldview, is your worldview aligned with the mind of Christ? And does your actions display who you live for. Is your faith and trust in the one who defeated death and gave you away when there was no way? If you don't know Jesus, and you're here in this building with us, please talk to us after the service, and we'll be happy to pray with you. If you're watching on Facebook and you do not know Christ, please write to us on Facebook. And we would be honored to pray with you, to worship with you. And in fact, this church has an incredible mentoring program that you can become a part of. And all of the questions that you have about who God is, who Christ is, and what He's done for you, and what it means, those questions can be answered. We love you. And for those who joined us today, we love you. And we welcome all of you here where I know for a fact that you'll feel right at home. God's people said amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, now that you have revealed your truth through the reading of Romans 8, 6 through 11, 6 and 7, giving us a new perspective of life. 8, 9, giving us new identities and a new way to act according to the Spirit. And 10 through 11, showing us the eternal life that is promised to us as those who place their trust and faith in you, Jesus. Lord, now that you've revealed yourself to us through the reading of this text, I pray that it transforms our lives, it renews our minds so that we see things differently, that we act differently, and we set our minds on the things that are permanent and not on the things that are temporary. Father God, we love you, we praise you, and I pray that you were ultimately glorified through this sermon, and you are glorified through the fellowship that we have with one another here at this church. And I do pray that those who are watching this sermon that do not know you, that this would be the day of salvation for them. And that the question that was answered, who do you place your trust in today, that they answered Jesus Christ. Lord, that is why we're here, to be fishes of men, to be used as a tool for your glory to reflect you wherever we go. We love you, God, so, so much. In your precious, precious name, amen.